Welcome to the 34th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast, brought to you by Animal Riot Press, a literary press for books that matter. It's your producer, Katie, here, and this episode has been edited to reflect our new name. If you're new to the Animal Riot community, welcome, and you can find out more about us at AnimalRiotPress.com. Now on to the episode with your host, Brian Birnbaum, and today's guest, Meher Manda. your host, Brian Birnbaum. I'm here today to welcome back Meher Munda. Meher is a poet, short story writer, culture critic, and educator from Mumbai, India, based in New York City. She earned her MFA from the College of New Rochelle, where she founded the Canopy Review. She is the co-founder and co-host of an angry reading series in Harlem and the author of Busted Models, perhaps the greatest title of anything ever made, a chapbook of poems from No Dear Magazine. And yeah, it also looks awesome. I gotta add that too. And before we get started, I'm going to say today's brand of fuckery is brought to you by the cake leftover from the magnificent launch party. Thank you, Katie, for putting on the greatest party that has ever been partied. And a little story about the cake. It has a picture of me, like, keeling over. Had. And it had, yes. And it, it kind of looked like I peed my pants in the picture. It was kind of funny. So we originally wanted the the novel cover for Emerald City on it, but Wegmans, we got the we got the cake from Wegmans, which is hilarious. They called and said that there was a copyright issue, and we said, "No, that's impossible because we own the rights to this book." And so we demanded like 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 yuppies demanded to speak to the manager. <laughs> and we're not yuppies, we're poor. <laughs> we demanded to speak to the manager and they got on the phone and said, no, we just don't want to print a cake that has a, a gun and a joint on it. We were like, all right, fair enough. And I was like, yeah, we should take this to the Supreme Court, you know, avenge for the, um, the, the Supreme Court ruling that did not go in our favor, in our opinion. And also, furthermore, Meher, were you the first one to cut out cut out the cake but no you cut out my crotch yeah i'm a little shameless i'm not that shameless. yeah I was it your the cake multiple times were you ordered to or did you just do, do it on your own volition no so i circled the cake several times uh-huh. she kept saying katie who is the greatest party organizer or organizer of making things happen yes that was a baller publication day party uh-huh. press launch thank you all that fun stuff thank you katie. Uh, kept saying eat cake eat cake eat cake so uh-huh. i circled the cake but nobody cut it. And I realized that there are processes to these things, and I didn't want to be the initiator of such processes, so I kept walking back to my station or you know wherever people were, hoping that somebody cut the cake. And then finally, Chelsea comes to me bearing a you know, small piece of cake. So I'm just like, okay, this is my chance. And then I go, and then I realized just on the spot that I want the crotch. And Katie- So Chelsea did it. Maybe she did. Maybe she it cut the cake. It sounds like she did. You know, and then I said I wanted the crotch. Katie very generously offered, as you know, all good partners do, I, offered her partner's crotch to me on my plate. I feel very uncomfortable. There's a lot of jokes coming in my head that's, that are going to ru- ru- ruin my reputation that I'm not going to say. Okay, I will. Okay, let's end this. Cake, 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 cake. As uh, as Jay Z would say. Oh, yeah. apparently, apparently, you you told my mom that a lot you of ate fun my things crotch. Happened. I took the crotch. I convinced the next person who came for the piece to take your head. And then all that were left were your feet. So mm-hmm. the whole cake was intact, save mm-hmm. for one side piece. But your, you know, bust and crotch were butchered out. And then 
your mother was close by and this other lady whom I don't know was close by and she signed off to your mother that you were missing oh. from the cake that you'd been cut off <laughs> so then your mother had you know she covered her mouth she was like horrified but like slightly <laughs> amused horrified uh-huh. and she looked at me and i maybe pointed mortified. Mortified, maybe mortified maybe mortified yeah, yeah. and then i pointed to my crotch and pointed to the plate to say <laughs> that your crotch was on my plate and so this lady who was the communicator comes by and i say you know take the legs literally lost in translation yeah i'm just like take <laughs> take the legs cuz those were the only thing left so uh-huh. she's like fine so she uh-huh. took your legs yeah. and that's how we cut you off that cake it's beautiful It's, it's it's very beautiful. macabre and it's very in tone with your novel. It I is. Think. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's exactly how I wanted it to be, you know, I think. And the interpreter for my parents that night has worked for Michelle at CWP before she told me. And she used to work for my dad back in the day. Hey. So it's all full circle, I guess. Or it's like it's like a serendipitous like, like offering. A, yeah, or something. It's like a it's like a yeah, it's a curved shape. Let's move on. So yeah, we're here to talk about debut books or chat books in your case. Do you want to talk a little bit about your chat book? Sure. Let's so, do that. um, this book is called Busted Models. Yeah, which is again the greatest title for Thank anything you. ever made. Fun fact. Nobody knows this. It is the title of the first ever short story that I wrote in my first semester of the MFA program. Ah, so you recycled the title. I see. Yeah. It's a title that I thought was really stupid at uh-huh. the time until the story got workshopped and everybody's like this is a great title and i thought mm-hmm. okay cool so this is apparently a good title so i'm going to hold on to it that story itself lost its favor with me i love the story the, i the writing has lost its favor with me so it's a mm-hmm. story that i need to repurpose and rewrite entirely at some point so i meanwhile was working have been working on a larger poetry collection which is titled Some of Many Women. Mhm. And I've been working on it for about a year and a half, 2 years almost, uh, and that's sort of taken over my life. And I knew that, you know, given the nature of poetry publishing as is, it's hard to sort of get your foot in the door mm-hmm. and get your stuff out there organically. Like just getting your first book is, you know, if it's not through a first book award, it's a little tricky and i realized a chat book would be a great way for me to get something out there mm-hmm. and also to you know create to acknowledge that a larger work exists behind it as mm-hmm. a backbone so i was sending out i sent out a few chat book submissions and i needed a title and obviously couldn't use the main book title and i thought about it uh, and i read through the poems that i chose for the chat book submission and i realized all of them like the larger collection too but all of them in particular have a great irreverence to higher authority okay there's a lot of you know they defy higher authority they critique higher authority and they also challenge the concept of authority and the the, the title from the short story just came back to me you know because the idea of busted models is just the fo- the foundational idea of that story was also that you know the elders don't know what the fuck they're doing hmm. you know and this concept came back to me while i was reading this poems and i was like yeah it's my title i can take it put it where the fuck i want who cares mm-hmm. so i did that and that's how it came to be called busted models i sent it over to a few places like as a sort of a test drive and no dear magazine got back to me sometime around march 
of this year or April, uh, and they said they would like to publish it, which was very exciting for the listeners who don't know. No Dear Magazine, they're a independent, you know, chapbook publishing press. They put out, you know, poetry journals, and they also do debut chapbooks of poets. They did Marva Halal's, you know, they've done a bunch of chapbooks, most notably Marva Halal's debut chapbook, and they're run by the very spirited Emily Brown, who's brilliant, who's amazing, mm-hmm. and a great team of editors, and just, a, they're just they just have a very inclusive voice in terms of the kind of work they put out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was very excited to join that coterie yeah, of take, writers. Take notes, everyone. Yeah, this is, there's a lot of there's a lot of a lot of juice here. Juice, yeah. <laughs> I was very excited to join the coterie of those writers or cabal. Cabal. If we're talking about irreverence here. You okay. Know. A little seditious. Uh, and know? so No Dear does a sort of a chapbook series every year. They put out four chapbooks in, within a season. Uh-huh. And all those four chapbooks have a theme. And that theme sort of is dedicated to, I would imagine, the choosing of the chapbooks, but also the cover. So all four of them have the same cover with, of course, the names and titles appropriated to the specific author. So this uh, specific series is called Archival and Remembrance. And the cover is this brilliant, the best way to describe it is that it looks like one of those uh, vintage library checkout cards. Yeah, yeah. The cover is fucking just fire. I love it so much. Yeah, It's gorgeous. When I saw it, it's so it's so like quaint and yet like not in some like conservative way quaint. Like it's like it's quaint in a way that's just like very like like i don't know like blue stocking sort of like just bookish way i yeah. don't know i just love and, it and also I love, love the it. fact that it's so you know when in poetry especially you talk about because there's so many forms of poetic writing that exist but we should we, real quick i just want to say before you get into that where can you where can we buy this so people can oh. look at the cover and then buy it after they after they see the cover yeah on no dear magazine's website it's yeah. available for 12 dollars, and i believe it comes up to 15 if you you know order it online with you know the delivery charges and stuff mm-hmm. i believe that no dear also puts up you know copies of the book at a few indie bookstores in the city okay uh, but i don't have the complete information about that okay. yet so maybe, maybe we can add that after yeah or, or something and like that. you know we can also come over to my website it's on it'll be redirected from my website's writing page so mm-hmm. it's also listed there Maher Manda writer is unfortunately it's not that cute it's um, <laughs> it's meherwrites.wordpress.com beautiful that's cute I lost meherwrites.wordpress.com due to a silly mistake so uh, okay. it's like it's dead WordPress won't let me have it. R.I.P. So you were saying? Yeah. So you know, in in in, po- in poetry, you want to choose a form that fuses, you know, imagination with content. You want, you know, you don't want to write something as a prose poem just because, or mm-hmm. you don't mm-hmm. want to write something as a, you know, the haiku just because. Mm-hmm. You want that to be married to what you're trying to say, mm-hmm. and I feel like this cover does that. It marries the theme of archival and remembrance to like making it a collective voice the four chat books and i think it's very that's what i love about it that's not mm-hmm. a gimmicky cover and in a more lowbrow l- way i'm just gonna do some death of death of the author kind of shit and say yeah. this is how i see it it's it kind of feels like you're stealing a library card yeah <laughs> which is pretty irreverent so or a book maybe i don't know something like that you get what i'm saying but yeah so i heard you read some of it at your launch yeah and your incredible grasp of uh of the English language is, you know, itself is worthy of purchase. I'm just, just going to say very that exciting right coming from you. Well, wow. That's flattering. No, Thank you. You have a very <laughs> incredible vocabulary. So it's like, you know, I would say, I would say I know a lot of words, but how to use them 
is is another story all 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 itself, so to speak. You know, <laughs> I, I do think it's really important. I mean, the you know sometimes at points, and this is how I know you're a poet because sometimes at points, because your your poet your poems can be dense in a way that's not turgid and pretentious, like dense in a way that there's so much packed into like every line in, in the most like poetic way possible. You know that they, that's the point of poetry sometimes is to be very economic with your words. But like at some points, like because the syllabics or like the bellatristic quality of it, I would just kind of get lost in like the the just the aural atmosphere of it. You know what I mean? Which like kind of feels like I'm cheating it just because there is because I know the purpose of your poems are so much more about the content than than the the way they sound. You know, there is a sort of poetry out there that like at its worst form becomes like a word salad that's like basically got this quote-unquote nominal bellatristic quality like you know it sounds pretty you know whatever off the tongue so to speak but like i don't know if it's the way you read it but yeah i was just like wow i can't i can't even read like that like you know (laughs) like i feel like such a shit reader compared to you i heard you read (laughs) last night you can read very maybe it was because i was reading someone uh, i will say right now that last night at the launch party i didn't read from my book which was really fun because I got to read um, from an incarcerated writer. I hate I hate the fact that the I hate the phrasing of all this. Like I liked it. I would I wish there was a way to just say a a person who writes who was in prison, but that sounds just weird. But but anyways, this dude Saint James who was in this bluegrass band. Yeah. Saint James Harris Wood. He was in this bluegrass band. He got addicted to heroin and like found himself in jail. You know that whole story. The prison industrial complex treats addicts like like you know like criminals unfortunately but you know i won't judge i don't i don't know where this guy's been blah 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 but his writing's fire and like it is it i hate to say it but like i've become so much of a better reader but it it was somewhat easier to read someone else's stuff there was a less self-conscious aspect to it and i was so enthused about his stuff that i was like i could really get into it you know what i mean um i don't know it's it's always um i think the the way i think is I, I don't see people necessarily as good readers and good writers and bad readers, and but good writers or in that space. I always think that, how do you take to a word? I'm just very seduced by people who can speak a word the w- in a way that other people can't speak it. Mm, yeah. And that could be speaking it to paper or speaking it to an audience, mm-hmm. uh, but who can just hold a word and take its cadence and translate it into a larger meaning. So to me, it was irrelevant that, you know, whether you were reading your own work or somebody else's, because yes, it was a writer who does not have the access to come into a literary space and present his own work. Uh But at the same time, you had animated the story for me. And I was completely, I was hanging on to every word. I was hanging on to every, and which is tricky, especially with prose, because you know yeah, you're reading yeah. a lot. You're listening to the same voice. It's very easy to get, you know, sort of, you know, get caught up and lose yourself. And, and every and everyone remembers what like what's around them is more alcohol and pizza and cake. Yeah. So yeah. and you want <laughs> you know. But yeah. to me, I was just so, and I realized that that's the mark of a good. I hate the word wordsmith because it's so pedantic and it's so it's kind of cheap but I think the idea of a good purveyor of words and that that 
if you can translate a word and animate it with a lot of meaning, mm-hmm. whether it's your own or somebody else's. Yeah, and I I, I, I think a lot of it is just like buying in, which is what I appreciated about your reading is like I really admire like I think it's so important and I'm working on this, but to like buy into your own stuff. Like you wrote this and like I am proud of the book I wrote. Like I worked on Emerald City for six years and I did my best. Like I put out the best thing I could. And yet I'm still like, there's like, I'm like 92% there, but like there's still like, there's a couple moments where I find myself reading and I realize myself and there's that self-consciousness in the back of my head where I'm like, are they enjoying this? And then I like kind of come out of it just a little mm. bit and I'm like not the character anymore or something like that, you know, and I'm getting better, but I know exactly what you mean. There's so many different ways to like own a word and like you got people like we've had Aaron Puchigian on this podcast, who's one of the best readers I've ever seen in my He's life. He's a great reader. And it's like, but that's like the, like the exhibitionist sort and not, no exhibitionist is a bad word that has like performative. A neg- yeah. Performative. In yeah. A that, has a, that has like a pejorative aspect to it. Yeah. It's not because it's, it's beautiful. And then you have like someone like, David Foster Wallace, who's reading this like hyper intelligent, like shit in a really like shy way. And everyone in the crowd's just like cracking up because it's like so funny. And mm-hmm. he like doesn't break. Like, David Sedaris also does that. Yeah. It's right. Very, like- and then you have someone like Zadie Smith, who's like very stoic, you know, and reads with this like kind of like elegant cadence, you know, mm. and there's just so many different ways to read. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like. It's just, I appreciate all of those forms, you know, they're all really beautiful. When I teach poetry to my students, because they all, especially undergraduates, are fed all of, you know, the slam, visually performative, arresting videos, and they come in with that idea of poetry reading. So the first video I always show them is Suhair Ahmad's, I think it's, the poem's called uh, 9-11 Blues or Post-9, it was a post-9-11 poem. Mm -hmm. And Suhair Ahmad is Arab. And this poem was also about, as a New Yorker, knowing that that moment, the moment of 9-11, shifted everybody's lives forever, but also the lives of her own brothers who were fighting for America Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in the armed forces, Mm. you know, but knowing that as Muslim men, they're suddenly, their lives get shifted in a way. Right. And if you see that reading, there's a lot of, uh, a video of that, there's a lot of tension in the space, and she's reading it in a very, like you said, not stoic, but very, you know, subdued. It's very, it's arresting, but it's 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 controlled. Mm-hmm. It's you know, there it's retained to a common core mm-hmm. of, of of voice, and she lets her sort of nimble voice just carry the poem through. Mm-hmm. There's no hand movements. There's no, you know, extravagant performativity as the situation in the poem demands. And that's what I ask of my students. In that reading is such a frightening and terrifying aspect and reality of our desire to write and present our work to the world. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be that if you're not that person who's a natural extrovert, who's a natural, who takes to the stage very naturally, the reading doesn't have to be that kind. You, reading can, can, you be, can be yourself. You kinda, can be yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All yeah. you have to do is read slowly and be clear, yeah. <laughs> be audible and take your pauses. Uh-huh. A pause makes and breaks a reading. Yeah. It's true. You Like that moment when you're supposed to let a word hang in the uh-huh, air. Uh-huh. You know, when you know that this enjambment means that I wait for a response yep. and then move on. Or when your voice is slightly supposed to rise or slightly supposed to speed up. Just knowing those little intimacies with the text. Yeah, I had, and I had no grasp of that. I was so terrified when I first started reading. I like... 
I was I was trying to speed up at points and I would mm. stumble over words and I was just trying to get through it because I was so fucking nervous. Like uh, it was it was just a disaster. And like now I'm at the point where I'm like I still I'm still not as good as I'd like to be, but You're I'm great. I'm better. I'm be- like no, like thank you. I appreciate that very much because especially nice. because oh Katie over here literally when I first started reading was like yeah you suck, <laughs> <laughs> and I needed to hear that because like I did. It's it is something that like yeah you do have to just get up and practice too like at some point it is a kind of it is a performance to a certain degree and even though like you should just be yourself it does just like growing up and going through puberty and finding your identity or whatever cliche bullshit you know whatever yeah. platitude is there it's like you do got to kind of just get up and do it but I do want to ask you um something real about about and I won't just kick down kick the can down the road on on this one like. Because I'll answer to this too, but something that you mentioned about how bringing you back to like, you know, a debut work coming out, you know, this chat book. And you said like how great that night was, but then you felt like the whole, it's like almost like it ended. And then you were like, oh, I felt nothing like, you know, after that night ended or something or whatever it is. It's like, and I think that's common. Like I remember even before like the launch party or something, when I knew the book was done, it's like people would be asking me like, how do you feel? How does it feel that it's coming out? And I would just be like, in the back of my head, it's like. I just want to write another one like, you know, or something like that. But like, I don't know. I want to hear how you feel about like, what, what is that like for you? You know, also with the awareness that yours is a, you know, full length book and mine is still a chapbook, not in any way to trivialize a chapbook, but yeah, with right, an awareness right. that a chapbook does not contain the full breadth of what this subject matter was dealing with. Yeah, it's part of, it's part of, and it is actually part of a larger It whole. is part of a larger yeah, yeah, whole, yeah. larger mosaic. But I always imagined because to write and publish something that has my name on the cover was such a, call it masturbatory, was such a dream yeah, for the is. longest time, as it is for every writer. Yeah. It's just, it's been a obsession. I, I read that in, in the prison writers that I like communicate with, like they all say the same thing. It's like they want to be known. Mm-hmm. They want to be seen. They want to like have their name on something, you know? I respect writers a lot who are all about the process and not about, you know, you know what happens the after. The, yeah, I, whatever you glory want to call it. Glory is... That was just an operational Yeah, term, just like having know? a name on something doesn't necessarily signify glory, but it also feels like... It's like... Accomplishment, whatever you want to call it, you know? Yeah, and I don't want to make it seem like writers are in any way, you know just uh, that it trivializes the pursuit of craft for feeling that yeah. way because but that's we're a scientist vain. We're, we're vain too scientists in a laboratory are vain if they're yeah. working on an experiment <laughs> yeah. they want the results but i also wanted to just bring it up because like we're not psychopaths for for like <laughs> for we're wanting not fucking, our name no and also not marking the, our territory like dogs. on the on the other hand like psychopaths like kill people and don't feel anything like we're not psychopaths like because like we publish something and then like that feeling is just like wait Where's that feeling that I thought was going to be there? You know, it's like for me, it was that realization that like, oh, yeah, I really do this because I love doing it. I don't do this because like and it and it, it and I, I brought like when we were talking earlier, I brought up the everyone has to go through the Siddhartha journey. Mm-hmm. It's like you do have to go through it. And I do think it propels you to write that first thing is like mm-hmm. that idea that you're going to publish it. And it's important. Like that ego aspect is important. And it still is important even even after you publish that first thing. Like you're a human. The, like you have to address the ego. And maybe you have to like tame it or something. But like, yeah, there, there is that realization once you publish something that like nothing's changing. You've just, 
you you finish this thing and you're going to know some more people. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, you're going to you're going to know a few more people. And that's what's great about it, really. Which like, you know, you're going to know. Yeah, you're going to know like, a few more people. I think architects don't sit in their little room and make like elaborate floor plans to never want those floor plans to become a real building. Yeah. They yeah. want a building. Yeah. What would be the right? Exactly. They do not just want to sit there and yeah. like draw art. And I can imagine that the day the building is launched or whatever the thing for a building's version of yeah. lo- book launches. The ribbon cutting. The maybe. ribbon yeah, cutting. Yeah, whatever the fuck they do these when days. When that happens, <laughs> when you know you've worked on it so hard, but they get like a celebrity to cut the ribbon or a politician and you're like, you know, you, the, I'm sure that feeling, there is a disjointed feeling. But I imagine that a month later when they walk down that street and they're like, that's my building. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see it there. Mm-hmm. And to me, I think that night, because... You know, I my book was being celebrated and all my dear friends were there. People who've supported this work, people who've supported me in any mm-hmm. way were there and they wanted to celebrate it. It's also the idea that this is too much. Maybe this is not even worth it. Mm-hmm. There's also that at the back of your head. And then you hold the book. You don't really feel anything. You're like, uh, uh, whatever. But I have to tell you this. This is something you don't know. After I told you that I didn't feel anything about the book mm-hmm. and I was just like, you know, whatever, whatever. There's always another thing. There's right? always yeah. another thing. Yeah. I was, yeah. I've been at Herschel's and Herschel's copy because he'd pre-ordered and his copy came in uh-huh. and his, the, the package was like next to me on the, the living room. I was sitting at the couch. I was doing something. And so I open it to see and then I look at it and then I read the first poem and then I read the second poem and, uh-huh. then, I read the third uh-huh. poem, and uh-huh. then I read the whole book. I mean, it's a chapbook. It's only like 25 pages. Yeah. So I read yeah. the whole book and I had this very strange moment at this particular poem where I kind of choked up and I realized, wow, this poem's good. But that's where you remembered why you did it, yeah. you know, because like, like, it's not like the, the exhibition of it or like, you know, any of that van, like that vanity, it's not going to fill you up. It's when you read it again and you're like, and that's why readings are cool. Like when you mm-hmm. got to do the reading, it's like, you're like, wow, like, yeah, uh, like I am actually proud of this. Yeah. I think it adds value. I think this is why people are here. This is why they're talking to me right now. You know what I mean? That's that was the like, you know, at the launch party last night, that's when I felt good. Like the, you know, we were talking before when I had to like kind of shift and like it felt like I wasn't wasn't able to treat people like human beings because like everyone wanted my attention at certain points. Like that's that felt shitty. But like the fact when I had conversations about how they felt about it, the people that had read it and stuff like that, like yeah, that that feels really good, you know. Yeah, I can totally imagine you Two months from now, working on your next novel, you know, Katie's at work, you're just sitting there, and then you spot your book across the room on top of your shelf, and there'll be that moment where you, and there's nobody else in that moment. Mm -hmm. There are no reviews in that moment. There's nobody listening and clapping. There are no lights. There Mm -hmm. are no photographs. There are no videos. There's no Instagrams, and nobody will capture it. Mm -hmm. You will just look at your own book, and you will think, damn. Like, it's like your baby. You built it. I will say, no, you're very right. And I will say I brought an arc with me when I went to rehab Mm -hmm. because I, at that point, I had never been lower in my life. And I brought an arc in with me because I was like, at least I've done this. And it was like like my my little like talisman. Like I could just like touch it and like be there. And then when people, like when I told people I was a writer in there, people were like, damn, like that's crazy. You're a drug addict and you fucking wrote a book. <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> you were like, ever heard of Dennis Johnson? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or like countless other people. I was also, it was also, yeah, it, it was strange because I was like, are you, like, they had all these photographs on the wall of like celebrity addicts and I was like, oh, yeah, no, it was cool. Did they put yours up? <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? 
That's a ridiculous question. <laughs> You're a celebrated author. You have a book out. You've got reviews. No, we're talking about like Anthony Kiedis level celebrity. You know what like, I mean? Like Heath how many Led- people Heath are Ledger. Anthony Kiedis level? But the, oh, quite a few. I mean, like oh, there's a lot of them out there. Mm. You know, we got the Amy Winehouses and Heath the Brittany Ledger. Murphys, and you know all these, you know all these people. But yeah, anyway, should we should we do a reading? Is Listen, it too- if it was my rehab, I'd put your photo oh wow that's really flattering like this author was with us and also i have to say that you know at that point when uh when i look over and katie's at work and i see my book i'm gonna get a text from katie being like the fuck are you doing uh what the fuck are you doing staring at your book do Mm -hmm. something (laughs) (laughs) read david's book As is the natural course of literature, you yeah. move on to the next thing. Move on to the next thing, and and I am I am very as as I was talking to you about before, I am very excited because I'm I'm for the first time in years I'm working on a short story. I've like really never been that big into short fiction. I'm writing a Fantastic. Sh- yeah, I'm writing a short story. I've got a couple essays in mind, but you know I've published a bunch of essays and like I've done that and like and I still love it. I, I like I love that I've discovered nonfiction, but uh, but yeah, it's crazy, like. And, and and I don't think I would be doing it if it wasn't for the fact that I'm like, okay, I've been published. Like, you have to walk that Siddhartha path mm. and know that, like, that goal, that's sort of an illusion but isn't. Like, it's the only thing that's going to get you to that sort of equilibrium, you know, so to speak. Like, you got to walk it. And now I'm like, oh, I can just write a short story and, like, live longer. And then I'll start my novel at another point. Like, mm. you know, I don't know. You know, this reminds me of that... I was reading Salman Rushdie's, rereading Salman Rushdie's Joseph Anton. Mm-hmm. Which, which, is, which you... I can't stop yeah, raving yeah, about Yeah, I know. You need, I, no, I no, can't but stop you, raving about him. I know. I need to read him so, you, so you'll stop Talking like fucking nagging me about he, reading Salman him. Salman Rushdie's and, and, and my David Foster Wallace. And it's, it, it, <laughs> no, here's some real like, uh, like synchronicity or you know, fate, determinism, whatever you want to call it, like whatever you believe in, the God of your own understanding. <laughs> None. <laughs> uh, like after you, you told me to read him and then my friend Jake whom I thanked at the party last night, like, and I sent him that video and he was so, he was so happy. Like he had been like, he's, he'd been texting like right after that. He was like, have you read this thing by Rushdie yet? And I was like, all right, the universe is speaking to me right now. I got to read this fucking dude. Like, you know, so he writes in Joseph Anton because that's all about his fatwa years when the fatwa was imposed on him. Mm -hmm. And the guy had already won the booker and he'd already had, you know, you know, he he had shame. And then he had the satanic verses, which was a hit, which had been nominated for several awards and but then the fatwa happened but through those and en- that entire time he was writing he was churning out books mm-hmm. like a like a factory i mean not like a factory in that it was you know brain dead it. operation but it yeah. was a completely he was constantly imagining what can my next story be and it's particularly fascinating because this is a guy whose movement has been restricted he can't move around. He can't yeah. access public spaces. So in many ways, this dials back to the Pen America, you know, Pen America partnership that all the reading series are doing, where we're for the prison writing, yeah, incarcerated yeah. writers, uh-huh. because that this idea of like this is a guy, not to say that he was in a prison, but in that he was, his movement was restricted, his freedom was restricted, mm-hmm. and this guy was constantly at it. Mm-hmm. He was constantly. He churned out like four books. In that in that ten years, yeah, yeah, and I realized that that's what writers do. Mm-hmm. You sit if there is glory, you love it, you'll take it, you sit in it, mm-hmm. and then you move on because like it doesn't feed you, it doesn't feed you. The act of writing, the act yeah, of putting yeah. word to paper, is what feeds. That's you. a very good way of putting it. It doesn't. It does. It there's no nourishment there. No. Yeah. It's not. It's like it's like eating cake. As, yeah. As, yeah. Oh, I yeah. We're, yeah. I, 
we're still eating cake. We're still eating the I leftover eating cake. cake. Yeah, my hair's eating. I've, I've opted out because I've had a lot of leftover pizza. Yeah. And yeah, and like, honestly, I, I hate to make a judgment here. Like, especially about someone who was so sad and ended up ending their own lives. But like, one of the failures I do see with that perhaps a failure of, of DFWs is that I think there was still always an element of like getting something at the end of the line there, you know? And I remember like someone writing about him at his launch party for infinite jest and he was, everyone was having a good time. Like, you know, and I think maybe his editor, Michael peach or something wrote this. I forget who it was, but he was like upstairs in a room just being like, like, is this it? Like, you know, and it's like, and then he didn't write, he couldn't finish The Pale King after that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I do think if you lose sight of the fact that, like, this is it, like, this is, like, you either understand that, like, you're in flow, like, you know, because this was another dude who was a recovering alcoholic, you know, like, so he can relate, like, you know, so, but yeah, I don't know. Should should you, should you read now? Should should we do a reading? Or do you want? Do you want to? Do you, is there anything else you want to talk about about a debut um, work, novel, chapbook, whatever you want to call it? You know. I think you know a question that I would ask you is. You know, there's this whole gestation period of writing a novel. Yeah, that's the that's one of the hardest parts. Which is the hardest yeah. part, and there's this maybe whole... the hardest part. Maybe the yeah. end is also very hard, but and yeah. I think the whole process is to be yeah. really honest. Even the day it gets launched, sure, there you're you're overwhelmed, you're supported, you know. You there's have a, a sweet spot when you're drafting where it almost starts to feel easy. I would I would very much has like or not or not like overwhelmingly difficult is better is the better way to put it. I think it, first know? draft is the most optimistic part of writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's no hopes, no dreams, no you know, there is ambition but there's no expectation. Right. And there's just pure, you know, processing. It's mm-hmm. just churning out. It's just letting the words or the story take over. And you're just constantly discovering. It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. And then 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 once you have the first draft down, everything after that is awful because now suddenly you've prescribed an expectation uh-huh. based on that quality. And you think, okay, now yeah. we're, we're fucked. Now we have to go from here to make it the best version that yeah. we can make. For me, that that process kind of starts itself over several, several times throughout the, you know, throughout. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Like, in because, like, you get excited, like, in, a, in, like, a third draft. You're like, oh, like, I got all this, like, narrative, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you hit that pl- place where you got to fix it all again. And, you know. But anyway, you were saying, so in the gestation period, yes. You know, in the gestation period. And this is, I asked this because you, it's funny you said you're, you're working on a short story because I've been bitten by the novel bug. Ooh, this is exciting. For the last month and a half. I don't know how much of that is the fact that I've been working on a poetry collection for two years and I'm just sort of tired uh-huh. of writing poetry, of thinking poetry, of speaking poetry. And for some reason, maybe reading Rushdie and like just, uh, there's the story that refuses to leave, but it's uh-huh. not a fully formed story. It's the germ of something that could grow into something bigger. How do you reread your work and rephrase your work and reposition your work without, with kindness to yourself? Ooh, wow, that's a really good question. I did not do that for my first novel. I was not kind to myself. Like I'll, like I'll be, and Katie knows that more than anyone. Yeah, it was constant like elation while I was writing, and then like, holy shit, there's so much fucked up that I want to like fix and like. And it's, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit here and like dramatize it as like, 
oh, I'm like, I'm a piece of shit writer all the time. It did get to that point sometimes. Like I would sometimes be like, oh, I'm not, I'm not worthy and like stuff like that. But it wasn't like always like that. It was more like, am I cut out for this? Like, oh, I got this rejection from this agent or something. And like, it's like, it means, it means that I'm not good enough and like this and that. And like, and so like, I'm trying to like bring it back to your question about the process itself. How like and how to like not do that <laughs> because I do think that's important because because at some point when you're doing that, you have to con- like have this paradox of the the desire for perfection and the knowledge that you're never going to be perfect that you need to reconcile that paradox like you know because if you don't, you are gonna drive yourself insane and I did drive myself insane. We all know that i've I've told my story of where I've been in the last couple of months like I did drive myself insane I did. And it's not all because of the book, but like, yeah, there was a lot of it there. It was like, I'm, I worked until three, four in the morning and like, I did that using substances a lot, you know? Mm. And it was a drive for, for perfection that was not healthy. It just wasn't. I think the best way I can answer that is that you have to be doing it to nourish, like nourish the product and yourself. And what, and how to do that is to be constantly focused on like, on when you're sitting down, are you obsessing over something to the point where you feel that like twitch in your head and like you're reading a line like a hundred times and you're not getting anywhere? Katie would see me doing that sometimes, like at the end of a session. Like I'd literally be looking at the same sentence for like, I, I'm not kidding. It's ha- like at, at some points it would be like two or three hours. And it's like, that's fucked up. You can't be doing that. Like you have to be able to separate yourself. So whether that's in a microcosm of a single writing session, and like you're looking at a single line or if it's more like in a macro sense of I've only given myself one day and like I'm not really getting distance from this section I'm looking at and I know there's something that I don't like about it. I really need to step away and maybe work on something else. And like I'm trying not, I'm trying to put this in a way that doesn't sound cliche and just be like, you know, just be fucking chill about it, dude. Like relax, like, you know, because we're never going to be like that. But at the same time, I really do mean that if you, you just got to keep in mind that if you think you're going to finish this tomorrow, you're just fucking kidding yourself and you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You know, I took six years on my novel and it might, maybe it even should have taken longer because I killed myself doing it nearly, you know, mm. but you know, do it first in a way that's just consistent and healthy and that you're taking care of yourself and that you're not trying to finish it tomorrow. That's my only suggestion. Yeah. Like that, that would be my mantra. Don't try to finish it tomorrow. You know, just work on something today. Have a good time doing it. Make sure you did your the best you could that day, whether it's a sentence or three thousand words. You know, I don't know. I I, I hope that's good advice. It yeah. sounds like it sounds like really kind of like amorphous or maybe like you know nebulous. But and I don't even know if I can take that advice myself because it's it's hard. Like I'll sit there and obsess afterwards. But you know the. Uh, Garth, uh, one of my professors at, at Sarah Lawrence, you know, he wrote City on Fire and everything. Mm-hmm. He literally said, like, he wakes up in the morning, he writes, and then he does not think about it the rest of the day. Not at all. Like, he just doesn't think about it. That's how he drafts, you know. And I, I couldn't do that. I would just obsess, like, mm-hmm. you know, about what I could fix. So, I don't know. Is there is there another question that I left, like, in that? 
No, like because in that I, answer. It's interesting because you know what you said you up uh, you 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 are capable of obsessing over the same sentence for three hours. Yeah. Uh, with me, it's more of I I'm I'm incapable of doing that. I, I don't think that's a bad thing. But but I also then reject everything that around it, and I sort of push it into a hole, and I take that very personally. I take that as a personal failure, like. Oh, that sucked. Hence, you are not a good writer. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Like at the beginning of the podcast, you spoke about my poetic voice, and I've struggled with calling myself a poet. I still struggle with calling myself a poet because uh-huh. I'm a, I'm a very narrative writer. Yeah, yeah and yeah. that's that's my style because I am originally a fiction writer. I'm uh-huh. a journalist. I'm a prose writer. Poetry was something I always did, as a break from fiction until this project came to me and until this project took over i never wrote poetry with the intention of building a collection uh-huh. so it was like one straight poem here and one straight poem there so to me you know the kind of voice that to some poets comes so naturally even when they're sp- speaking like cough cough devon uh, <laughs> cough cough uh, it's just this like natural like even like last night when he was giving a speech it's like he's such a poet yeah like, it was is. so obvious what dead rabbit uh-huh. he was going to pick in that yeah. contest because he's a poet he's got he speaks in dulcet tones yeah it's, yeah, for sure. it's gorgeous yeah. and it's also uh-huh. infuriatingly <laughs> like amusing and uh-huh. i love that and i always struggled with not having that myself until now at least with poetry which happened because of a great workshop i took with the poet vincent toro is that you know, I'm allowing my poetry to be intentional and, you know, consider, considered and thought of, you know, without that necessary natural voice coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm trying to, like, marry my form with my message and, like, be very, even, like, mathematical, like, be a math scientist about the process. Ah, uh, so do you feel a measure of guilt about that? Not necessarily. I just take it as a personal slight when I can't figure something out because I am... I am, this is why I've never written a novel or even come close to writing one. Uh-huh. I am a very first draft writer. To me. And then it, and then do you feel like overwhelmed? Like it's like there's so much that you feel like shit about that you're just yeah. overwhelmed. So I feel like for me, the revision process and editing process is about perfecting, yes. Yeah. But if the magic is not there in the first draft, I refuse to even consider it. Hmm. So. I feel two ways about that. Because yeah. it. I, I can say the same thing, but at, like, you know, I, I might feel like that about things I've, yeah, I've written countless things that I've just abandoned because I felt that way. But at the same time, maybe there's a feeling you're trying to capture that's actually never going to be there because I've never written a first draft that I was like, oh yeah, this is fire. Like, you know, just this, if I just do this, this, and this, like, you know, it's, it's good. You know, even if I feel like that, I give it to someone else and they tell me, they tell, they, they set me straight. You know what I mean? They're like, dude, what the fuck? Must be nice living <laughs> with a writer. You think you're fucking James Baldwin? <laughs> like, who the fuck are you? I can't write a fucking, I, I can't write a grammatically correct sentence half the time like when I'm drafting because my, like, my head is buzzing so much. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so like, I think there might be an aspect of you need to allow yourself to have fun when you revisit it the second time. Cause there is a feeling that I get when I read a first draft that it's not like, so basically <laughs> when I approach a draft now, like when I was younger, it was overwhelming. Cause I was like, Oh man. Cause like, I'm trying to get something published. And like, you know, that, that goes back to my mantra of like, don't, don't think you're going to finish this tomorrow. But now when I approach like a first draft, it feels like, Oh, this is going to be so fun. Now I'm going to get to turn it from something that's not that good 
now I get to see what I get to do with it. You know what I mean? And so like maybe some, maybe some of that is missing from that feeling. Like some of that feeling is missing when you approach a first draft. It's like, it's all like, I expect it to be here, but it's like so far down here. While as like for me, like maybe it's because I've been writing fiction so much longer than you, you know, or, or like maybe not longer, but so much more than you, you know? And like, cause it like, if I, if I started writing poetry, I'd probably have the same feeling as you. It'd be overwhelming. It'd be like, this is so bad. Like, I don't even know how to make this good. Like, whatever, you know? Yeah. But yeah, now now when I approach something that I've written, like, I can already feel the short story that I'm drafting. I can feel how shitty it is, you know? But I'm excited about where it's going to go. I'm excited about the possibilities. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I, I, I don't think I can speak that feeling into you. <laughs> like, you know? But at the yeah. same time, like, maybe maybe that, I maybe me saying that will spark, like, you going down the path to like getting that feeling, you know what I mean? Cause like, I think a lot of writers feel that way. They get, just get so dejected by what they put on the page. And yeah. it's this irrational thought that like, you're going to write something brilliant right away. And like, maybe if you've, especially if you've been working in another form, not even in writing, like as an athlete, when I was younger, I was just so naturally good that maybe when I started writing, there was this expectation that I was going to be an all-star. And I mm-hmm. felt like that when I started writing, I had this bravado. And then everyone told me, told me how much I sucked. And I was like, oh, fuck, I feel like shit right now, you know? Yeah. And it took me a while to kind of like build myself back up and like be like, okay, I got to keep working on it, you know? So it's not just within the draft. It's like in all areas. It's like, what else are you good at? That like you have that expectation that you're just going to do it and it's going to be great, you know? But like looking at it now, it's like, it's like okay, I, I I wrote this draft. I don't care how good it is right now. Do I do I care about this project? Is there something that I'm trying to say here? Like those are the questions that I ask myself now. It's mm-hmm. like, what am I trying to do here? That will tell you more whether it's worth pursuing than like, is it good right now? Yeah. You know, in a vacuum. Like, would someone read this right now? Like, it's like, are you when? I guess it, another way to put it, not just like having fun with like revising it, but go back to that question of why am I why am I writing this? You know, and it's like, do you still get excited about that? You know? Yeah. yeah I don't know. I just said I just said a lot of words about that. No, I see. That. I think I think I think it's time for you to read. I just went on a fucking excited rant about the process. I got way too jacked up right there. <laughs> I'm glad I got you there. I'm like ready to start writing. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay. So all right. So I'm gonna read poems I've never read. Ooh. So that it it doesn't feel like stale to me, uh-huh. and it doesn't feel stale to the world at large. I've I've heard a lot of uh, of writers say that, like yeah. when they, when a book comes out for them, they like they're like, you know what, I'm sick of reading this, so fuck it. Uh, you guys are getting this tonight. You yeah. Know? yeah, and it's beautiful with a novel because like, you know, everything is prose, so you can shift your way around. Yeah. But poems, like some poems read well, some poems don't. Some that, poems look good on paper. That's true. Only. And to um, you know to the other to the to another point. I would say that the novel's hard because like context, mm-hmm. like, like if you just drop some, you know, if you just drop in somewhere, someone's like, where the fuck am I? I feel like I'm in a fucking like Kubrick movie, except I fast forwarded the first 35 minutes. Yeah. Like, you know? like, is the first half of the movie missing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So this poem is titled turf. I mean, the context is in the poem, but just for the sake in, so Bombay local trains are infamous. Mm-hmm. You should Google images of Bombay local trains during rush hour mm-hmm. because they are 
murderous. So to make things easier, but not really, you have uh, specific compartments uh, that are allocated to women only. You know, because they're so crowded that there's no way. It's practically just, it's 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 unimaginable to have to, like, fight a bunch of men and try to get into their compartment. And then get, like, feel all of your parts of your body being touched. So uh, certain compartments are allocated to women only. And I've spent a good amount of my adult life traveling in them. And there's a certain space about that so this is a poem about that it's called turf it's mumbai circa 21st century Uh the ladies compartment of the local train at rush hour is a battleground the trains don't even have to stop for us to jump into the open door carriages because we're that skilled an army the women at the front are the cavalry and if we don't charge fast enough we run the risk of toppling our reserves that is how we look out for each other We offer pregnant women seats, touch their gravid bellies like seers looking for any sign of life in crystal balls. The train hauls over loudly, but not loud enough to drown our singing. Of course we sing on our way to a fight. That is another way we look out for each other, by keeping spirits up, sharing morning stories of incapable husbands and children born to become cogs in the wheels of the trains that keep us battling. We've never known the waters, the breeze that comes off of them, the very red of wine that is best had smelling the sea salt. We blush by lusting over strange men on billboards. We exchange photos and videos and dreams in the safe of the engine siren like contraband. Before we were here in these carriages, before these trains and tracks were here, the city was one big forest by the sea. This is why we lose ourselves in the woods of sharing. Why we nourish ourselves with five rupee knickknacks from the hawker in the train. Buy scrunchies, earrings, garish, loopy chokers, only to toss them into the pits of our carry bags. So we can discover them after many days of non-stop war and remember the faint touch of nomadic friendships. Amma says that there comes a time every woman loses her will for combat. We too step out of our bodies watch ourselves elbow, push, and jostle each other for space. Bicker over who stepped on whom and who dragged whom, and much like all soldiers, beaten and haggard, we start to fall by taking each other down. We become friends in treachery, and for a short moment are this close to giving each other up. When someone says something casual, a wisecrack or a particularly operatic movie dialogue to ease the tension, and we fall for it in each other hard. I ask myself if the bodies of women are made to bear such beating. But then someone reminds me that the state has always found a way to push down on all of us. And women have only just learned to be considered a battalion, a squad, a troop, or whatever it is they're calling themselves for the revolution of the day. Wow. Yeah, let's do one more. Have you fallen into the friendship of treachery? Yeah, like... (laughs) <laughs> the kind of fights you see in the women's compartment of a local train is bestial. Like, I've seen women pull each other's hair. That's fucking crazy. Because they're like, and there's no space, and it's yeah. just, it's awful. And I feel bad for all of them, even the one who, like, put drops the first punch. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't to know any better. To be driven to that point. Yeah. She doesn't know any better. Yeah. We don't know any better. <laughs> this one's titled, I Buy Mangoes to Lunch which was published in an issue of Lumina that you were also published in. Ooh! So, exciting. 
I buy mangoes to lunch, to snack, to dinner. I take my great nation's fruit and let it flood me with sweetness. Now, when the world changes wings, when days are longer and fuller of stuffed heat, touch glass, tree, bark, door, knob, and person, and get burnt kind of heat. Hot, like mother, dousing my body with iced buttermilk, that I use to swallow fruitfuls of mango, feed myself into a plant. I nurture and sprout mango-flavored heat boils, but I persist. Scoop out spoonfuls of creamy apus from its arched bed. Suck life from the bunginpelli, the dasheri, the langra. Squeeze their hearts of all their juices. Leave behind parched seeds, like the kissing boys who began to eat the mango of my tongue. So for love I stopped kissing. Saved all my thirst for a fruit, shaped like a season's cycle. The rich yellow of summer afternoons, the golden wounds shutting my eyes to the blinding sun. All reminders of a sickly sweet childhood. When the other grandchildren and I had Amama in our trap, needling our mangoes with tender, crooked, time-pressed fingers to feel their ripeness, to tell us which fruit is ready to be eaten, like an old-timey general pausing a hot minute before charging us to attack. So we crowd around her year after year in a time-honored tradition of growing children and aging grandmother and the muchness of fruit. But sometimes, Amama looks frozen at something else entirely. Inspecting fruit and fullness, she looks into the eyes of me, a woman among boys, scanning for the hunger, robustly swelling into a body of tightness and loops, of flesh and fiber, capable of so much sugar and so much hurting. How this body had begun to yearn without my learning to hide plainly in sight. This Amama watches as she goads my fruit, all of my unmitigated desire for everything. While I gulp down her stare, tell her to make it quick. Tell her using all of me and my craving, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. Mm -mm. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you. <laughs> it, uh, I, it's very interesting. The two poems you just chose, they, they're very... Um, they feel like almost under the microscope, like, you know, not moments, like, especially that second one wasn't a moment by, mm -hmm. by a long shot, but a, like in, in terms of subject, you know, while as a lot of your poems are very big, you know, would you agree with that? Like that the scope of them can be very big. Yeah. I'm, I'm so I, I, I enjoyed hearing those. That was kind of like a different. It was a little bit of a different side of you. you I think know? they're softer. I'm they are soft. Yeah, they were a little softer, especially that second one. You know. Yeah, I'm. I'm trying also. I think, as a political person and as just even a writer, that not everything has to be a grandstanding, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, narrative. The second poem, especially, is so important to me because the mango is like the Indian mango. So some of the I name some of the kinds of mango in there that you get in India, mm -hmm. which is, you know, not to take away from my Latinx 
you know, family, people, mm-hmm. friends. But if you've not had an Indian mango, you've not We've had a not mango. had a mango, yeah. No. It yeah, is just the greatest tasting thing in the world. And within that spectrum, there are different tasting mangoes. Mm-hmm. And one of my first ever awful periods happened after eating a mango. So in, in many ways, I, I, I've, and then I quit eating it's mangoes. It's very biblical. Yeah. I quit, eat, <laughs> I quit eating mangoes for an entire summer. You did what? You thought it was like cause and effect I, or something? Yeah, because, you know, I associated <laughs> that, that really painful okay. period and that, you know, the way my family also received and that period uh-huh. or, you know, the puberty coming of age as like a very symbolic thing to ripeness of uh-huh. the fruit. Uh-huh. And, you know, mangoes, if you eat a lot of mangoes, they give you pimples. It can prepone your periods. Like you mm-hmm. hear all of these things. And to me, just the idea of, a, you know, the lust for a fruit versus, you know, but especially women's body learning to show desire before they understand what desire is. Yeah. You know, the yeah. swelling of breasts, the swelling of the body. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's what a lot of your poems are, are the experience of women. Yeah. You know, and but there was a touch of personal experience more so than in some of your other po- poems that are yeah. that can be a little more not just political, but like. But yeah, like for for a a like a, and not just for a cause, but for a population, yeah, you know, for a, a, a demographic, yeah. you know. So yeah, that was really cool to hear. Thank, Thank you. you for sharing that. Thank you. That so was much. awesome. Okay. Are you gonna read? I'm not gonna read. No, I'm gonna close it down. Okay. Yeah, they, the people, the people will call if they want me. I don't the people know. will come calling. They will come calling. They know where to buy your book. They know where to buy Emerald my book. Emerald City. Okay, that's it for today's episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Animal Riot Press or through our website, AnimalRiotPress.com. This has been the 34th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast with your host, Brian Birnbaum, and the wonderful, brilliant Meher Manda. Our transcripts for our deaf and hard of hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay. This episode was cut by our podcast assistant, Dylan Thomas, and we are produced by me, Katie Rainey. See you later, you filthy animals. Belly.